0: If you have your copy of God's Word, I'm going to invite you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 3 this morning. Genesis chapter 3 as we continue. For those of you that are visiting here this morning, or maybe you haven't been in a a few weeks, we're in a series entitled Genesis Act 1. This is Kevin DeYoung's the greatest, or excuse me, the biggest story. So as a father of a 6-year-old and a 10-year-old and a 12-year-old, one of the things that's been a part of our uh, our life together are, are some of these picture book Bibles. And so, this is really appropriate, I think, for 4-year-olds to maybe 7- seven- or 8-year-olds. I was reading this to my 6-year-old just recently, and it starts like this. Once upon a time, there lived a man and a woman. They were the happiest people on the planet. True, they were the only people on the planet— But they were still terrifically happy. Their names were Adam and Eve, and God made them. He made them in His image, little mirrors to reflect God's glory. And like everything else God made, He made them good. If you haven't been with us for four weeks, this is what we've been talking about for four weeks. It was a wonderful time to be God's children in God's wonderful world. Unfortunately, Things didn't stay happy and wonderful for long. This is the story of Genesis 3. On one very bad day, Adam ate from the only tree God had declared off limits. Adam failed. It was a terrible day, the second worst day in the history Of the world, a snake had tricked Adam and Eve and told them a lie about the fruit. He said that they would be like God if they ate it. But actually, the opposite was true. When they ate the fruit, they found themselves far away from God. I was reading this to to my youngest son, and he saw the image here of the snake. And his question, as he looked at this, as we continued on the story with the snake... His question was, is, how did the snake get in the garden? Where, where did the snake come from? And, and that really is the question. Because for two chapters, we've heard the refrain, God created and it was good. God created and it was good. God created and it was good. And he creates man and woman. He creates male and female. And there's the crescendo of creation. And it is very good. And then we open to Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, and then out of nowhere, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. There's no backstory to Satan. There's no theological aside. There's no philosophical musings about the origin of evil, the origin of the serpent here and this side of heaven, those kinds of questions, while they are important for us to ponder, uh, the writer of Genesis saw fit not to go down that road. There are no parenthetical references. For those that you were wondering how everything is good and then all of a sudden the serpent comes into the garden, there's none of that there in Genesis chapter 3. So our questions of the origin of evil and how the serpent got in, while they're logical questions to ask, they're they're not questions this side of heaven that we can fully answer with this clear-cut clarity. Uh, It's important for us to understand that the Bible is clear about some things in regard to Genesis chapter 3. What we clearly know is that the serpent The devil is masquerading as a serpent. He is the devil, the chief of the fallen angels, like everything else. He was created good, but he usurped God's authority, and he attempted to overthrow the creator. The question is, why did he do this? What were the motivations of Satan's uh, desire to overthrow the very one who created him? John Milton, and really this this masterpiece of literature, puts into the word or into the mouth of Satan his motivations. And I think Milton in Paradise Lost gets it pretty close when he says that Satan says, better to reign in hell than to serve in heaven. That original sin of Satan was a sin of pride, a sin of saying, I would rather reign in hell. Than to have to serve you in heaven. So there's the fall of Satan, and with Satan, he takes a third of the angels. All were created to be good. Satan's name means adversary. And so his primary aim that we're going to discover in Genesis chapter 3, but you don't have to look at Genesis chapter 3 to to see this in your own heart. He is an an enemy to you and to me, to anyone who would profess the name of Christ Jesus. He opposes God's work by deceiving us, by dividing us. And I want you to discover in Genesis chapter 3 here that there is a pattern that we can find in, in that original temptation given from Satan, but there's also not only a pattern, but there is provision in the text here for all of us who will come after Adam and Eve and all of us who will know the pull of that prowling lion that we know to be Satan. So look in Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, notice with me Satan's deceptive strategy. We're just going to walk through this text here. Notice that there is a disguise Satan disguises himself with the, the, the garb of an ordinary appearance of a creature here. There are no flaming swords in Genesis chapter 3. There are no smoke machines. There's no sinister soundtrack that accompanies the serpent into the garden here. He appears in the form of God's good creation there is nothing about the serpent's entrance and conversation with Eve that makes Eve, at least from the text that we have before us, recall in fear. She doesn't do that. She's enticed. She is interested. And this is a strategy that Satan still employs. He disguises himself in the garb of God's good creation. He is parasitic in this way. He, he is not one who is creative in a way that he can do something in his own accord. He has to latch on upon God's good creation and pollute it like a parasite would. So he takes God's good gift of food and he twists it into gluttony. He takes God's good gift of provision and he twists it into into materialism. He takes God's good gift of beauty and he twists it into lust. He has this parasitic way of taking God's good creation and twisting it in such a way to pollute it. This is his strategy. Now, what is his currency? What is the currency that Satan operates with? And what we discover in this passage here is that he trades on the currency of doubt, That he trades on the currency of doubt, and then we'll see in a second, deceit. So the first theological conversation that's had is right there in verse 1 of chapter 3. You read it. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Notice that it it parades as this innocent question, right? Did, Did he actually say that? It just seems really innocent here. He's baiting Eve, and Eve As long as she stays connected to the truth of what God says, there is no foothold, but she moves away from the Word of God. And it's in that place that she is prone to the doubt that Satan introduced to her. Now, notice what Satan does. He says, did God actually say that you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? Well, what did God actually say? Well, in chapter 2, Verses 16 through 17, we read, The Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely... Notice that. Notice how Satan uses the words of God, and he twists them. You shall surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in that day, the day that you shall eat of it, you shall surely die. So, Satan asked Eve, did God actually say that you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Well, what God actually says is, is you can eat of any tree. You can eat of all of the trees except for this one. So what Satan does is he recasts God's bountiful provision and he emphasizes the prohibition. So he, he starts with, uh, you can't eat of any of these things, Right? Well, actually, God says you can have them all except this. So he recasts God into this stingy provider here. He makes Eve focus on what she can't have instead of focusing on all the things that she can have. And it's important for you to understand that he he still trades in the currency of doubt. He still wants you to focus on what you don't have while ignoring the bountiful provision that he has given to you. Long day at your house. You sit down at the end of the day, mom or dad. You start flipping through Twitter. You're flipping through Facebook. You're flipping through Instagram. And you start going through those Valentine's pictures. And all the couples look to be so perfect. They, they all got to go out on these great dates together. You see the, the new house and the new decorations that are being posted and, and, and you see the new car that someone got, you, you see the announcement of the, the son or the daughter that is, is going off on this, on, on the, to, to school and everything seems to be working out. And, and you see all these things that are going really, really well. And then you look at your life and say, man, that's not happening for me. And what ends up happening is Satan, he he entices you to doubt God's good provision in your life. and, And it moves you into this covetousness. It moves you into this jealousy. It moves you into this place of materialism because you begin to emphasize what everybody else has and what you don't have and what is Satan doing. He's whispering in your ear just as he was whispering in the ear of Eve saying, look what God is keeping from you. I love Ann Voskamp's book, A A Thousand Gifts. She says this, that thanksgiving, giving thanks in everything, it prepares the way that God might show us his fullest salvation in Christ. The gratitude and thanksgiving in the midst of whatever season of life that you're in, it is the antidote To Satan's strategy to to focus your attention upon what you don't have. And so when we come back to that place of gratitude, thanking God in all seasons for what he has provided for us, no matter how difficult that season might be, it is the very antidote to Satan's subtle strategy in your life. He he trades on the currency of doubt and he trades on the currency of deceit. Notice how Satan... Wants Eve just so subtly to doubt God's word. Now, now notice that when Eve opens her heart to the whispers of doubt, then Satan moves in and he closes the door with deceit. Look at me, or look with me at chapter three, verses two through five. The woman said to the serpent, "We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden." But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Notice the the subtle switch between doubt to downright deceit. Notice how, how Eve at first is asked to doubt the word of God. Now she is being deceived by the very arch enemy of God, our creator and our Lord. He says, You will not die if you eat of that. Well, God has said, You eat of that, you will. Notice how Satan says that you will be like God, two places of deceit. You need to understand that the enemy has at the currency of his Uh, satanic strategy in your life and my life to tempt us not only doubt but deceit that that he whispers lies to us it is of his very essence to deceive us here when eve begins to question in her soul when the doubt is there it opens a door and then satan comes in and, and it feels like a command that she has to obey that's how deceit works and it works in your heart, too. That, that doubt moves to deceit. Maybe you think to yourself, you know, if I is it really that wrong to fudge just a little bit on this expense report? And so it's just a little bit of doubt. And then, and then the next thing is you open that door to doubt. The next thing is, is nobody will ever find out. And this will get me out of a tight just this one time. What has happened? You've moved from doubt to deceit. you're in the break room you know is it really that wrong just have a little bit of innocent flirting here with my coworker a little bit of doubt and the next thing you know it's it, you've moved to this place where you're saying to yourself nobody would ever find out and this person really gives me attention this could be good you've moved from doubt to deceit here. So when you doubt the the word of God, you open your heart. I open my heart to the deceit of the enemy. This is Satan's deceptive strategy, but I want you to also see sin's enchanting appeal. Again, look with me in verse 6. So when the woman saw... Notice the verbs here. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight, notice the description, a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Eve saw the fruit. It was a delight to her eyes. Notice the enchanting appeal of Satan's temptation in your life. And in my life, he dresses up sin in a way that is, is sensuous and desiring to our, our eyes. I mean, this, this past week, Ben Hale and myself went to Las Vegas to... Uh, it sounds like the the plot of a bad movie is what it sounds like. <laughs> a preacher and a mission pastor are on the Vegas Strip. So, I mean, it just goes downhill from there. So, And so, we're there... Because the North American Mission Board is planning churches in Vegas, and we're praying about what that could mean for our church as NAM asked us to be a part of of some of those conversations. And it was just so absolutely encouraging as as we're sitting there with couples that they're not only going to Vegas, I mean, they're leaving their house, they're leaving family, and they're planting churches in Vegas, they're planting churches, they're planters going to San Diego, planters going to San Francisco, planters going to Salt Lake City, and, and I'm around these men and women, and I just say amen and amen and amen to what God is doing And that we as a church, as as you give to this church, you you are giving to be a part of of the nation's hearing. And as the nations move to Vegas and they move to San Diego, praise God for those men and women. And and I'm praying, I just, this has nothing to do, it has everything to do with the sermon, but nothing really directly to do with the sermon. But I want you to know that I am praying in this next decade that God would, would raise up men and women from from places like uh, Hoover and Homewood and Vestavia and Mountain Brook and, and Gardendale and Fultondale and Alabaster that, that come to this church and say, God is calling me to go to a place where there are not churches on every corner. And so that's what, that's what we were a part of. And we, we had one night and we didn't really even know we had the night until about 530 and there were uh, we had this opportunity, so we said, well, let's just go down there. And I've never been to Vegas before, and so we get in a taxi, and we're going through all the, the sites and stuff. And it's just, it's just one of these things is this, this is a visual parable of the way Satan does. Everything is so visually appealing. The lights and the sounds, there's a sense in which it, it just calls you in. And this is how Satan works. I don't know if I've told you this story or not. Uh, I had a good friend of mine who was one of my teachers and tells the story. This is maybe an 825 illustration, and we'll see if it's a 940 and 11. But uh, so, so, the, so the way it works is they're, they're doing this cross-country traveling from one side uh, to the next, and they stop. This is 1960, 1970. You don't have gas stations at every exit here, so they stop at a at a kind of a rest stop, old-school rest stop. So they have these vending machines outside, and they begin to put their money in, and one gets some M&Ms, one gets a zero bar. Danielle, is it a zero bar? Zero. I got a thumbs up. It's a zero bar. Do you know zero bars... They, they have that white chocolate on the outside. They've got the three musketeers inside, but they've got almonds. I'd, it's a waste of a candy bar, in my opinion, but <laughs> that's, that's neither here nor there. But, uh, so, decades ago, they're making this trip, and they get back into the vehicle, and three brothers in the back seat of the car, and one eats his M&Ms, the other eats you know his baby Ruth, and then my friend, who was one of my teachers, opens up the top and takes a big bite out of that zero bar and he looks to his brother and his brother gets this horrified look on his face and he looks down at the zero bar and out of that zero bar are maggots coming out aren't you glad you come to the 825 (laughs) you don't have to worry about lunch after that but it is this this that always sticks with me that the outside of that candy bar looked pristine but it was only when he bit into it that it was rotten to the core and this is what Satan does he always dresses sin up and when you bite into it it is rotten to the core Eve sees, it is a delight to her eyes, but what we discover is that sin's enchanting appeal always gives way to sin's lasting consequences. Look with me in verse 7. The eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and that they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. As soon as they bite into sin... They they realize that the relationship between both of them, that human relationship, it is broken. They they for the first time experience shame. This is paradise lost. Before us, Then we read in verse 8 through 9, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day and the man and his wife. They hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So there is shame horizontally and now there is shame vertically. They have always walked with God in the garden. They've talked with God in the garden. There's been unmediated relationship between a holy God and Adam and Eve in the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said, to him where are you that relationship with God that was a perfect relationship it was broken there in the garden this is paradise lost here that shame gives way to blame in verses 10 through 13 we see for the first time Adam saying you put her here he blames Eve but in essence he is blaming God I would have never eaten of the fruit if she would not have offered it to me. I would have never eaten of the fruit if she wasn't here. So you messed up. And when sin enters into the garden of our life, which it enters into the garden of our life, all of us have sinned. All of us fall short of the glory of God. And we too know shame. We too know blame. We blame our upbringing for our sin. We bring our conditioning for our sin. We blame others for our sin. The the blame game has not stopped in the garden. It continues, and we continue to cover ourselves with fig leaves, fig leaves of success, fig leaves of sinful pleasure, fig leaves of trying to to make a name for ourselves we know fig leaves because we know shame We no blame, but there is good news that you hear in the midst of the consequences of sin. We read that God says to them that there is going to be pain in childbirth because of the sin that enters into the garden, that the serpent is going to be confined to his belly forever and ever. There is going to be an adverse relationship between us and our work They are kicked out of the garden. One of the saddest passages, I think in all of the Bible, are these two angels outside of the Garden of Eden guarding the doors, guarding the gate, so that they could never come back in what was once perfect as as Adam and Eve have their bags packed. And they're leaving this place where they used to walk with God and now they're they're leaving it they're kicked out of the garden they take all of their stuff with them to never return again you and I we we're outside of the garden our shame, our blame, our sin, it has placed us outside of that perfect relationship with a holy God. And there is this honing mechanism inside of us that longs to be back into that place. But with your sin and my sin our sin. We cannot make a way back into that place, but I'm here to tell you that even in Genesis chapter 3, that there is a foreshadowing of hope in this passage, just like a rose that is growing up in the midst of this concrete jungle. There is this rose of hope that gleams forth that we read of in chapter 3 verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this cursed Are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field? On your belly you should go and dust. You shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is the first foreshadowing of the gospel of Jesus Christ here in your Bible. This is John 3.16 in Genesis chapter 3 right here because what we read in Romans chapter 16 verse 20 is that the God of peace will soon crush Satan under his feet. That what we discover is, is that on Good Friday when, when Jesus Christ hung on that cross, it seemed as if all hope was lost. It seemed as if all hope was vanquished in the death of God's eternal son, but the good news of Friday is only found in Resurrection Sunday. And so what Satan seemed to do, bruising the heel of the offspring of Eve, which is ultimately Christ Jesus, opens the door to salvation for all who would trust. Hear me, when Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden and opened the door for sin to enter into humanity into our story is the answer to their sin and to our sin and that is the death the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ you see there is a greater story that you need to hear that not in a garden But in this place of wilderness, after 40 days where Christ Jesus goes without food, without water, there would be another time where a serpent that we know to be Satan comes in to tempt, not Adam and Eve, but to tempt the eternal Son of God. And three times he comes to him and says, listen to me. I'll tell you something that will make you doubt. I want to deceive you. And three times, Jesus Christ responds with God's word and in Christ Jesus. When you place your faith in the completed work of him, his victory and the cross and in his resurrection becomes your victory. His overcoming of Satan there in his temptation becomes your victory over temptation that you would face that I want to remind you of this wonderful truth. Jesus won. Jesus wins. And when you are in him, you too know that victory.